0: But please open your Bibles now to uh, Luke chapter 21 or your service sheets. If you haven't got a Bible, uh, that's absolutely fine. It's lovely to see you if you are new to us. Welcome. Uh, I was thinking this morning and then for the rest of the week of just a, one of the rites of passages that people have in life. Uh, nearly all of us have had this one at least. It's when you learn to drive. If you are wise... You put your hand in your pocket, or your parents pay, and uh, you get all your experiences of driving instruction from instructors. They know what to do. They've got the right car with the double tap. People are looking at each other already. They've got the right car with the double um, foot pedal so they can hit brake when you should have done. But I didn't do it that way. So rather than learning with an instructor, I learned with my dad. Now, I can remember vividly the uh, hill starts where I was rolling back and the temperature was rising in the car, you know what I mean? Um, As I was panicking, I can remember the industrial states that my dad promised would be quieter as we kind of edged around at 7 o'clock at night after work. I can remember the car parks where we would go and practice our, our kind of reverse parking and whatnot. The real problem for me, and whether it's just blokes, I don't know, is that when you're learning to drive, you've got to do at least two things at the same time, and I just couldn't do it. So what I wanted to do was to look down at my feet to work out which pedal I was going to press at the right time, but I was shouted at, sorry, told to look ahead. I wanted to look down at my feet, but I was told to look ahead. And it's just really hard when you learn to drive, it's really hard when you learn to dance, I'm I'm told that, because I don't know how to dance, I'm hopeless. But uh, you've got to get your feet on the right pedals at the right time in the right order. Uh, If you're learning to, dance you've got to do the foxtrot in the right time and have the right posture and strictly come dancing and I clearly don't watch it because that's the only dance I know but it just got me thinking with that rite of passage about learning to drive looking down when you should be looking up about just so many different things in life where future events things that are going to happen in the future they shape the present so I wanted to learn to drive so I had to have lessons and instruction. Um, Say you're going to get married, lots of preparation and stuff needs to go in place to happen. Uh, So that happens and everyone gets an invitation and a cake is made and all that stuff. Say you get a new career, I want to go and be part of the army. Well you need to get in shape, you need to go and enrol. Say you want to uh, buy a house, you need to save for 80 years before you can do that these days. There's lots of things that you prepare for because you know they're going to happen in the future. You might want to retire. Before you're 100. So you need to start saving now. Those are all positive things. Things that happen in the future and then you start affecting the present, the here and now. The decisions you make are shaped by the future. They're all positive. What about negative? What about the time when you get the phone call you don't want to have? The doctor asking you to come in because results have come back. You've got the big C. Cancer has come into your life and actually it's terminal, no more can be done. The future is not positive for you, but it sure is gonna affect the present. Positive things in the future shape your decisions now. Deep concerning negative things, terminal things, serious things, they affect the decisions you make right now as well. There is no bigger future event that shapes how you behave in the present than the event that this passage talks about. I'm glad that Dave Reddick is a great reader and we need to read it slowly and we need to think about it seriously. Nothing is bigger, no future event should shape present decisions more than the event that this passage talks about. Jesus's return, the judgment of God, an appointed time in history that may be tomorrow, that could be a thousand years in the future, When the Lord Jesus Christ will return to rule and to reign on the earth, where he'll be seen in his splendor and in his majesty. He will return as saviour, but also as judge. That's what this passage talks about. Let's look at it together. Number one, judgment is coming to Jerusalem. Judgment is coming to Jerusalem. Look at Luke 21 together. In chapter 20, there's lots of to and fro between Jesus and his opposition, between Jesus and the scribes, the Pharisees, the tax collectors. They're all in on Jesus' case saying, what authority do you have? And after the to and fro of chapter 20, in chapter 21, the first four verses, Jesus is in the temple. He's been in there for the best part of a week. And he notices people are giving money, some out of their huge resources, with their American Express card, or whatever it was called, their Israel Express card, how about that? They just had bucket loads of money and they were giving some of it to God, out of their plenty. There are others, verses 1 to 4, who are really poor. If you've got a Bible, you can see from verse 2, there's a widow. She just gave two coins, but she had so little. It was a huge proportion of the amount of money that she had. But in verse 5, where our passage begins, I want us to look at very carefully. The tension goes to the temple. Here are Jesus' disciples, his followers, and they say, verse 5, they're making remarks about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. Now, we need to do some digging, pun intended here. At this time... People didn't live in flats. The shard was not constructed. High-rise buildings were not thought of. People lived in homes of mud, of straw, of brick of sorts, maybe stone, but very few. These were low-rise buildings. But then in Jerusalem was the temple. Now, the temple was something completely different. The temple was founded on uh, 40 feet long, 100 tonne weighing marble stone foundations. This thing was big, it was huge. It would have been multi-storey, it would have stuck out like a sore thumb. Josephus, a historian, says these words. It's covered with gold on the outside and the parts that are not covered with gold, it's made from marble that's so shiny and white it looks, quote, like a mountain of snow. And here the disciples with their jaws dropping saying, flipping heck, that's an amazing structure. Look at the detail of those stones. Look at the purity of that architectural design. Look at the hard work of the stonemasons who've worked for 50 years to build this structure. This is something that we can be proud of as Israelites. This is where we will go to worship God, says the vast majority of people in Jerusalem. It was something to behold. It would have made your jaw drop. It's pretty hard to get a modern comparison to how they would have felt. But then listen to Jesus. He doesn't say, yeah, wow, look at that. Did you notice that? Hey, you've missed a bit. Did you notice that as well? Did you notice that jewel that was added to the outside by a patron as they came up to make their offering at the temple? Jesus doesn't say that. Verse 6. As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. what Jesus is saying is almost unbelievable this temple is in the centre of Jerusalem with its large walls with huge wooden gates and there's the temple that looks impregnable and it looks like an architectural masterpiece but Jesus says this symbol of religious uh, worship, this symbol of national pride is going to be torn down brick by brick gold plate by gold plate curtain by curtain will be ripped stone by stone will be separated wood by wood will be torn apart will be burnt down one of my uh, favorite photos from world war ii shows the uh, dome of saint paul's cathedral i don't know if you've seen it night after night the luftwaffe would come over from germany and they were bombed uh, as best they could. They were blanket bombed all of London. Huge damage was done in the East End. Loads of bombs were dropped on uh, London in terms of the city of London. But there's one photo that's taken at night in black and white. It's brilliant. And there's just the dome of St Paul's Cathedral front and centre. And behind it, there is a curtain of grey from smoke that's rising up from other buildings that have been destroyed. And in one way, that picture of the dome was a symbol of hope. It kind of stood resolute against all the might of Hitler's machine, Hitler's war machine and the the, uh, attempts of the Luftwaffe. It was a symbol of national identity and pride, standing resolute. And and here you have a temple in Jerusalem that uh, had that same symbol in the minds of Jewish people in the life of Israel. And here is Jesus saying... No, 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 this is all going to be destroyed. You might look at it and marvel at it now, but not one stone, verse 6, will be left on another. Now it's important to say that what Jesus is saying here has happened before. It happened in the Old Testament. Time and again, God sent his prophets to his people to say you need to change how you're living. You're not living with me as number one in your life you're worshipping something else you're not giving me uh, an attention or any thought that I deserve you're worshipping other gods and if you keep on doing that then judgement will come there will be a day of justice turn back to me and they refused they were resolute in their determination to not live for God to not live under his loving authority and God will not be laughed at he will not be mocked what he says he will do a promise he makes he will keep And so there came a time when God uh, raised up a foreign army who came and encamped around Jerusalem, who destroyed the temple the first time, who knocked down the walls the first time and carried off into exile all of God's people whom they wanted to. And Jesus is saying this is going to happen again. Jerusalem has been rebuilt the temple has been restored. The work of Ezra and Nehemiah you can see before you. And it's even better than the one before. But do you know what? A day is coming. Another day of justice is coming. Another day of judgment is coming. This is not a new theme. You may have noticed it. If you've got a Bible, you might to turn back to Luke 19, verse 41. Jesus has entered into Jerusalem. He's the king who came, a paradoxical king. But he came... And Jesus says these words in chapter 19, verse 41. Weeping over the city, he says, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. Verse 43, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another. Why not? Because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. These terrible and fearful events are happening because of a spiritual condition in the hearts of Israel. They've rejected God as their king. They've rejected God as their father. God, as we saw in the parable of the tenants, chapter 20, he sent messenger after messenger. What do I do? I'll send my beloved son. And even him they rejected, and not only did they reject him, they killed him. Jesus is saying, judgment is coming. It's coming to Jerusalem. Secondly, Jesus says, judgment is coming, but it's coming to the whole world. It's coming to the whole world. When I was 20 years old, I spent so much time in a calendar year working on a computer that it ruined my eyes. So what did I think I'd do? I thought, right, I need to go and get an eye test. So I went into the shop that I thought said Specsavers above it. Thankfully, it did say Specsavers. My eyesight wasn't that bad at the time. And I went in, and as I was training to be a schoolteacher at the time, I thought, I know what I want to get. I want to get the half-rimmed glasses, because then I'll look intellectual. Then I can look superior to children, because I'd had that in my heart. I thought if I can't get those, if I'm not for those, I will get very focals Because then you can do that thing where you look into the distance and it's all okay. And then you look down. And I just wanted to look smarter than I was, which is not hard. This is my problem. I can see things up close. When I look into the distance, it just goes fuzzy. Really fuzzy. The, uh, what is uh, close at hand is clear. What is in the distance is not clear. That's my problem with my, my eyesight. Does that mean I'm farsighted? Short-sighted. There we go. I don't even know what it's called. In this passage, we need to work carefully now and look at it closely. Two things are referred to. There is a judgment that happened on Jerusalem in 70 AD, but there is also a picture of a future judgment. Judgment on Jerusalem, but there's also going to be a future judgment of the whole world. Verse 7. The disciples say to Jesus, okay, you're talking about this temple being torn down. We have two questions for you. Where and when? Verse 7. When will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they're about to take place? When is Jerusalem going to be destroyed? When is the temple going to be knocked down? Look at verse 20. This actually happened. Jerusalem will be surrounded by enemies, says Jesus. These stones, stone upon stone, upon these huge marble foundation stones, when were they actually removed? When did this happen? Or was Jesus just talking about make believe? No, he wasn't. In 70 AD, the Roman army led by Titus lay siege, a terrible siege, for about half a year outside the walls of the city of Jerusalem. It's estimated half a million to a million people died during the siege those whose bodies were not wasted by famine were killed by the sword and those that were not killed by the sword were taken away into exile once again the temple was burned to the ground and every man and woman and child in jerusalem were accounted for either by death or by exile and what jesus wants us to understand i think is that this is not just another battle by the roman army who a brilliant at battle it's not just another siege they knew how to siege. What's happening here is a picture of God's judgment on his people. This was the end of Israel. This was the end of the temple. It's the end of the way of worshipping God in this manner as well. But look on to verse 25 to 27. Jesus is also talking here about another judgment. There will be signs, verse 25, in the sun, in the moon, and the stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. Men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Remember, we're at Specsavers. And we need to see two things clearly. One is in the proximity, one is in the distance. When Jesus will return, verses 25 to 27 shows us, it will be in power and great glory. The Old Testament prophecies, prophets who had God's word and could see into the future because they had God's spirit upon them, of books like Joel and Isaiah and Haggai and Daniel, All of those prophecies come to bear in a sentence like this. This is apocalyptic language. This is talking about the end of the world, verses 25 through to 28. When the Lord Jesus Christ will return, not to die upon the cross again, but to judge the whole world. All those who trust him are safe eternally. All those who refuse his loving rule will receive the full force of his justice. And it's a terrifying thought. Jesus Christ will return as judge. He will receive his reward from his father. The Ancient of Days is pictured from Daniel chapter 7. He will receive people from every tribe, nation and tongue, And he will rule and reign forever. In a society, in a kingdom where there will be no more tears. No more cancer, no more crying, no more pain. No more enemies to his rule. God will be seen for his glory. And we, if we're Christians will see him face to face and enjoy him forever. But Jesus here is describing two events. One is geographical, AD 70, the walls of Jerusalem, the temple being destroyed. One is geographical, the other one is global. One is in time, Jerusalem being destroyed. One is, if you like, beyond time, out of time. One is a model of what happens in Israel of what will happen to the whole world Jesus is talking here and you need to flick between looking down and looking up looking close and looking far you know when you're on your phone or if you're using a camera and you focus on something and that's the wrong thing and you tap on the screen and it focuses on something else that's what Jesus is doing here there are two things literally in view one is in close focus the other one is in far but it's there and it will happen and it's true God's judgment is being brought down on his people that have rejected him. The temple will be destroyed. Not one stone will lay on another. And Jesus moves from one event to another with barely a break without a pause. With the flick of the eye, he goes from AD 70 to the end of the world, when Jesus will return from near to far, from close to distance. You need to very focus on to understand this passage. Jesus Christ is describing the judgment of Jerusalem. That's already happened, AD 70. You can look at non Christian historians who recognize that actually happened. And if that happened, Jesus is saying, not only is Jerusalem going to be judged, but also the whole world will receive the justice of God. If that is true, I want to spend the rest of our time thinking thirdly, how do we live in light of the future? How do we live in light of the return of Jesus Christ when he will be seen in his glory and majesty? He will not be a saviour anymore in the sense that mercy will end. He will be seen as a saviour for us who are Christians. But his salvation is time-bonded, friends. How do we live in light of the future? What does it mean by living in the light of the judgment of God? Four things. First one's quick. Number one, verse eight, don't be taken in. Living in light of the return of Jesus Christ means don't be taken in. Jesus says, watch out that you are not deceived. Many will come in my name, claiming I am he and the time is here. Don't follow them. And then Jesus goes on to talk about earthquakes, famines, nation, rising against nation, wars. And the point is here, there's going to be a lot of false press I think being in a secular world, especially in the West, we're pretty good at this now. When someone comes, thinking of someone 15 years ago or so, wearing a purple tracksuit who used to be a sports presenter and saying, I am the son of God. Our world is so suspicious, and rightly so, of claims of people saying, I am the son of God, that we're pretty good at debunking this sort of stuff. But still, Jesus says... Don't be taken in. Friends, I think often it's Christians who are taken in more than non-Christians. It's Christians that can hear some of this stuff and think, aha, here's the time. Jesus says, be careful, don't be deceived. Many will come in my name saying, I am the son of God. The time is nigh. Repent or die. Repent or perish. That sort of stuff. Jesus says, watch out that you're not deceived. This is a timeless warning. It was timeless 2,000 years ago when Bar Jesus appeared on the scene where there are people after the death and crucifixion of Jesus who came and said the time is nigh, Jesus will return and they thought it would happen in the time of Titus and then in the time of Nero and it didn't happen and Jesus has not returned yet. But being in no doubt when Jesus returns you will not be left behind if you're a Christian. Everybody who trusts Jesus, everybody who's fled for him will be taken to enjoy him forever. You will not be asleep. There will be a big, there's a trumpet in our house. When Harry's playing, I tell you, no one gets any sleep, no one gets any rest, and often lots of doors are shut. It's lovely to have it played, but it's pretty loud. There is going to be a huge trumpet. 1 Corinthians 15 says, when Jesus returns, no one's going to miss it. Put it that way. Don't worry. But also don't be deceived. Number two, be ready to stand up for Jesus. Be ready to stand up for Jesus. That's what it means, living in light of a future judgment of God. Where do I get that from? Verse 12. But before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you to synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. Verse 12 tells us that we will suffer as Christians by the hands of rulers and those in authority. Verse 16 tells us that family members, they will also cause suffering. But verse 14 tells us, don't worry. When you are taken before rulers, when your family say, what's happened to you? You've changed. Have you left your mind at the door? Don't worry what you will say because Jesus by his spirit, as Michelle prayed, will let you, let you, or rather give you the words to say. But the point here, being ready to stand up for Jesus, is this, verses 12 to 16. The cost will be significant. The cost of standing up for Jesus, of saying the gospel to people, not in an unwise, careless, foolish, hard-hearted way. The cost of standing up for Jesus, speaking carefully and wisely and humbly and gradually and carefully will be, it will be big. Jesus doesn't uh, coddle this. He says, are you ready to stand up for me? Verse 12. If you do, you'll be hated because of me. Are you prepared for that? Verse 17. All men will hate you because of me we need to be honest the amount of suffering that we faced in uh, the west is small comparatively all through the history of the church the, if there was a graph the amount of suffering in the west at this point is very very small we can just completely overestimate how much suffering we face at the workplace we'll be laughed at in school and college in the workplace we'll be sniggered at we'll be shunned we might be ignored things may and probably will get harder but that's a good thing for the Church. Because it sifts people and it helps us to see what we believe. But here we're told, are you willing to be hated because of me? Verse 17. When people see the likeness of Jesus in you, when they hear the gospel from your lips, spoken humbly and carefully, are you willing to stand up for Jesus, friends? Because it will be costly. I think it will be seen in this sense Some of us will have to make a stand at work over shady business practices, over ethical issues. It will mean demotion. It will mean a pay freeze. It will mean being looked over. Are we prepared to do that for Jesus' sake? This sermon could be recorded in another sermon in the future from someone else's lips. It could be heard and the police could come in and we could get arrested. You said What? You said, What would happen at the end of time? Am I prepared for that? Am I prepared to be branded a hate speech preacher when actually what I'm seeking to do is carefully say what God says? Am I prepared for that? Am I prepared to go to jail? Standing firm for Jesus. It will be hard, but are we ready? Verse 12 asks us. Verse 19, Jesus says, Stand firm. And you will gain life. Now this can't mean, verse 18 says, that not a hair of your head will perish. Those of us that have got hairs left, it can't mean that this is going to be so easy that we're never going to get hurt. We cannot say to the suffering church that there will not be physical pain involved in standing up for Jesus. People are losing their lives, even today, around the world, because they're saying they will not stop worshipping Jesus. So what does verse 18 mean? I think it means this, it's looking to the future. And it says, if you stand firm, you will gain life. Not now, but then. It's talking about eternal life. Example, there's a man called Justin Martyr. You can guess what happened to him by his surname. From the second century. He said, you can kill us, but you can't do us any real harm. It's a wonderful sentence. You can kill me, but you can't do me any harm. Because I'm eternally safe and secure in Jesus' hands. That's what living for the future will mean. It means don't be taken in. It means be ready to stand up for Jesus. It means, thirdly, fleeing for safety. What does it mean if you know judgment is coming? It means you stand up for him. It means you don't get drawn into things that you shouldn't do. It means you flee for safety. Verse 20. This is quite strange. Jesus says, when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies... You will know that its desolation, its destruction is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the city get out. And let those who are in the country not enter the city. That is a strange thing for Jesus to say. Why? Cities were safe places. Cities is where resources were. Cities where supplies were kept. Cities where you had a keep. A safe place right in the centre. Cities had walls. Cities had towers. Cities had gates that kept you safe. The place you didn't want to be is in the open country. That's where bandits were. And then Jesus says, when you see this is about to happen, flee. Run away from the city. Go to a safe place. This is completely counter-cultural. And that Jesus is saying, subtext, take me at my word when you see this happening run run away from the city flee this is how it works throughout the whole bible you need to take god at his word think of how difficult it was for someone like noah god's judgment is coming you need to get prepared you need to build a big boat so that you'll be safe along with a few others think of Lot. When God's judgment came to Sodom, you need to run away and don't look back. Think of Jeremiah. Jeremiah, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, but you will be spared. This is how God's promises work. When judgment comes, flee to the safe place. Flee to security. Flee to the keep. Flee for protection. The judgment is coming. All through the Bible you've got stories of men who were rescued. Women who escaped. Because they took God at his word. And that's only possible because there is one man. Who took God at every promise he made. And yet he wasn't safe. And his name was Jesus. He fulfilled every. Jot and tittle of the law. He took God at his promised word. And yet when it came to the cross. He was not kept safe. He was ripped apart. He had the full wave force of the storm of God's wrath and justice and judgment poured out on him. He didn't stay in the port in the storm. He went out into the storm, the perfect storm, the ultimate storm of God's justice and wrath. He wasn't kept safe. He knew what was coming. And he asked his father, is there any way I can avoid this? And God said, no. And so he went out and died on the cross for the sins of the whole world, taking my rebellion, your rebellion, and the just punishment for our sin upon himself. And that's all because of a promise that God made. God says, I love the world so much that whoever believes in my son will not perish, but they will have everlasting life. Friends, Jesus Christ is the keep, he's the lifeboat, he's the security, he's the rock that we can found our feet upon and we'll be sheltered for the storm of God's justice and he is the only keep, the only security, the only lifeboat, the only safe place there is. If you don't know him this morning, flee to him if i could scare you into it i would if i could buy you into it i would i really would but i can't and i won't friends judgment is coming if this passage is true if the whole of the bible is true because justice will be poured out and jesus christ says it's been poured out on me i've taken it for you either take god at his word and place your trust on Jesus. Or you're choosing to take God's wrath and justice on yourself. Which is a terrible thing. So be prepared for those imposters that come. Be prepared to stand up for me. But do you know what? Flee to a place of safety. And it's a person. And his name is Jesus fourthly finally be careful of distractions verse 34 be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation with drunkenness and the anxieties of life and that day will close on you unexpectedly like a trap We've all seen those wildlife programs, haven't we, when there's the three-ton alligator in the background. There's no music, it's just silence. It's in high definition. And bouncing along at the front and centre of the camera is a little animal who's thinking they've just seen a little bit of food that they can enjoy for their supper and it will fill their little stomachs for a day or so. And all that the three-ton alligator does is blink his eye. Are they vertical or horizontal? I can't remember how they do it. But you can imagine the scene. You know what's going to happen. And then in the blink of an eye, this alligator moves its three-ton carcass and this little animal is slammed shut in its jaws. Jesus is saying there is judgment coming. There is a day coming when he will return. And it's really possible for us to be caught up in the trap. We can be caught up by looking down at the here and now by enjoying things. There are two dangers in here in this verse. Jesus says you can live your life on dissipation. What on earth does that mean? It means indulgence. It means you can think, I know the future, but actually I'm not going to give it a moment's thought. I'm going to enjoy my life now, eat, drink and be merry. I'm going to willingly suffer from the disease of affluenza. I'm just going to build bigger barns. I'm going to enjoy my world I'm going to not give Jesus any time. I'm going to enjoy comfort and luxury. I'm going to settle down here and now because I think I'm going to die and then that's it. We can give ourselves to drunkenness. Literally, that means in the Bible you can get drunk, but it's also a a state of mind where you're oblivious to stuff. When you're drunk, you're oblivious to reality. You can be blind to the fact that Jesus will return. But also you can be anxious, this verse says. We can have the concerns of life. You can just be so consumed with paying your credit card off, with getting your kids a good education, with going on your next holiday, with getting better at whatever your hobby is, that you're just focused on the here and now. It's the danger of anxiety or pleasure. And Jesus says, I want you to be ready. Be careful of distractions. Because the day of judgment is coming. And I want you to be prepared. Four things that it means to live in light of a future day of justice. Don't be taken in by people who say they are Jesus. when there's only one Jesus. Don't be taken in by false people or false teaching. Don't be afraid to stand up for Jesus. Flee to him for safety. Be careful of distractions. But notice verse 36 finally. How... Can we keep the future in our gaze? Verse 36 tells us, be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen. And that you may be able to stand before the Son of God. How are you on the lookout? Is it by keeping your eyes open? Is it by having an internal drip of Red Bull or caffeine or keeping yourself fit, something like that? No, it's even harder work than keep fear through prayer. Friends, if you're a Christian here this morning, when you pray, do you pray with this day in view? Do you pray for people who don't know Jesus yet, who are not yet Christians? Does the fact that God's holiness is real to you, does that affect how you live? If you're a Christian, you need to be very careful as you listen to this, Your future, if you're a Christian, is absolutely safe and secure because it's not bound on your effort or mine, thank God. It's bound on Jesus. It's not about us, it's all about him. We are eternally safe and secure. We can have complete confidence for that day. But friends, do you pray about the return of Jesus, especially for those who you'd love to see saved? One day, this passage teaches us God will exalt his son. He will be raised up, not upon a cross, but he will be exalted upon a throne. And every knee will see him. Every knee will bow. Every heart will confess that Jesus is Lord, willingly or unwillingly. Let's pray together. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell, should endeavour to shake, I'll never, no never, no never forsake. Father, sometimes when we come to church and we listen to your voice, we are comforted we uh, can almost bounce out with joy about what you've done for us in Jesus, that our sins have been paid for in full, that we've been given our new status, a new standing, but the words of this chapter are so sobering that a day is coming where your justice and wrath and judgment and purity and holiness will be seen. Father, I pray for my brother this morning who doesn't live with giving you a second thought, have mercy on him, I pray. Father, we pray for other people who currently are not Christians. Please have mercy on them and draw them to yourself in the days to come, I pray as well. And for us, help us not to be a church that speaks unhelpfully or just not carefully or in a proud way about these things. Help us to be a church and individuals who weep who are confident about this reality that a day is coming when you will return, King Jesus. But that shapes everything we do in the present. Please help us be people who watch and who pray until you tarry. Amen.